Hello and welcome to Yes, You Are Brave. This is a podcast where we are going to set off on a journey together to find and build our brave, where we explore all the ways that you have been brave and all the ways that you can be brave again. Because even though we may have forgotten or we may have fallen out of practice, we're all brave. And I'm on a mission to prove it and help you believe that yes, you are brave. All right. Welcome to Yes, You Are Brave this week. I am so excited. I've got Mattia with us today talking about embracing joy. Super excited. Thank you, Mattia, so much for being here and um, sharing your story about embracing joy. So Mattia is going to tell you a little bit more about themselves, and but they have an awesome podcast called The Longer Road. Yes? Yeah. Okay. And do all kinds of other things. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Yeah, I'm Mattia Murray. My pronouns are they, them, as you may have just heard. And I do do a lot of things. I think of my work as being split into two halves. So I'm a working artist. I'm a composer, um, frequently commissioned. So, you know, working on classical pieces and film music. And then on the other side of my work, I coach mostly ADHD people. So people who are both autistic and ADHD, which is super niche, but also really important. That's me. That's my brain. And the people that I work with are often people who want to be able to build a sustainable life out of their true passion and genius. They have a lot of gifts, but they struggle with the day-to-day stuff. So they're like feel behind. And that was kind of where the podcast, The Longer Road came from, was people who feel behind in life relative to their peers, often because they've had to work harder to kind of get to the starting line. Like they feel behind regardless of what great things they've done. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the, a lot of what I do right now. That, <clears throat> excuse me, that is amazing. I think it's awesome that you have found such a specific group of people to help and people that are, I feel like probably often overlooked because yeah. most people just don't understand them and don't know how to help them. So I think that's fantastic. And the composing, I love that. I I love music. I'm only mildly good at it, but it's mostly just because I like doing it that I do it. But that is awesome. Awesome. So how long have you been doing those things? Like have you been you've been coaching and composing? Yeah, I've been coaching for four years. And technically I got into it sort of accidentally because my voice students were saying things like, Can we just talk today? And I was doing a lot of and I was like, What is happening? And then I was talking <laughs> to somebody else who was doing a coaching certification. And I was like, Oh, what you're describing sounds like what I'm doing. So like I'd kind of probably been using those skills or building those skills in teaching music for a long time. Um, I started teaching piano when I was eleven. So technically wow. I've been teaching music for over 20 years. Uh I don't remember learning to read music. I learned to read music before my memories started. So music has all my parents are both musicians. So that's always been wow. there. Yeah. That is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you, what do you play? Like just out of like, what do you, what instruments do you play? Yeah. My main instruments are voice, violin, and piano. Voice, violin, and piano. That's awesome. I love it. I love, I love the, the violin is one of my favorite things actually ever. Oh, cool. Um, I actually really love the fiddle. If I'm being perfectly mm-hmm. honest, the fiddle is one of my favorite things, but Awesome. So you've got a brave story to share with us today. Yeah, I do. I'm super (laughs) excited. So I'm going to give you the floor and let you share. And then I'll ask some questions along the way and a little bit at the end. Awesome. 
Yeah. I've been trying to think about the best way to say this because obviously I could share, you know, a huge amount about my story, but I also know that when I say something like, you know, brave enough to embrace joy, that somebody who is currently, you know, not feeling joyful, hears that and goes like, oh, great. I just have to like embrace happiness. Thanks so much. That's so helpful. Right. Um, and so I want to like, before I even jump into my story, say that part of the reason that this took bravery for me is because I was so miserable for so long. And that was my entire social circle. Like that was, I had found community around the difficulties that I was having for good reasons, right? Like due to disability and so forth. Like these are good reasons to have difficulties. And when I started getting a lot better and feeling a lot better, it was actually a really hard transition to just be like, oh, I just feel good now a lot of the time. I still have hard days, but I just wanted to like talk a little bit about that and be like, this is not just like, oh, you just decide to be happy. There was this very long healing process. And then over the past few years in particular, I keep having these cyclical moments where I just go, oh, wow, I have to like incorporate this almost into my identity again, just like feeling better and not being miserable all the time. So going back, you know, I was an autistic and ADHD kid. Both my parents are neurodivergent. I have six neurodivergent siblings. So it was an extremely chaotic household. (laughs) And even if my parents had been capable of meeting my needs, which I don't think they were, they just could, you know, they had seven kids. Like you, you, I think it's almost impossible to parent well when you have that many kids, regardless of what's happening. And we were poor. So there was a lot going on. And so I was really used to my needs not being met as a kid. Uh, I had some like specific traumas and started having like depression and chronic pain in my teens. So I had really, actually really debilitating chronic pain, um, which I later learned is partly because I have Ehlers-Danlos, which also goes along with autism often. So again, like if all of those things had been discovered younger, I might've gotten more supports, but also I might not have, cause it was the nineties. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a fair statement. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I was born in the eighties and, and at that point, like when I was a little kid, I look back at videos and pictures of myself now and I'm like, wow, it was so obvious that I was autistic. Like I had, I had very present visible traits. And at that time you basically had to be non-speaking in order mm-hmm. to get the diagnosis. So anyway, this is all to say. I had a lot of challenges as a kid and then uh, I actually started college really young. I started college when I was 14. So I moved out young, which was good in certain ways. And then in other ways, I was, you know, functionally an adult at 14. And I look back at that and I'm just like, yeah, no wonder I struggled with adulting (laughs) and like learning how to do stuff because I didn't learn how to do basic life things in certain ways until I was later on in adulthood. And then you add ADHD into that. And I was just like, great. So I don't buy groceries. I barely know how to do laundry, right? Like I didn't know how to do these things for myself. And so Mm -hmm. then I gravitated toward uh, what ended up being abusive relationships because I was like, I need somebody to take care of me. But somebody who is willing to do that is often not a great person. (laughs) Someone who looks at that and goes, oh, great. I'll just keep you helpless and like do stuff for you. That's not great. So that's all just up until like my mid twenties, I guess. So like up until about 10 years ago, um, I had a couple of incorrect psych diagnoses, which is very common. Uh, and one of the things that was really hard in particular is that my ADHD almost like 
the impulsivity of it and the like energy of it covered over some of the autistic symptoms, I feel like, and made them a little less obvious. Like I was able to compensate a little bit on both sides. And then my like anxiety and fastidiousness <laughs> of being autistic helped me, you know, do some things as an ADHD person. So like there were this, there was this really interesting, um, I think it's actually, it can be hard to get a diagnosis when you have both. And then when you're also, you know, gifted, which I hate as a term, but whatever, um, all of those things just kind of interplayed to, for people to look at my life and be like, oh, you're accomplishing impressive things. Therefore you're okay. And you don't need help. And yeah. I kept being in therapy. I was in therapy for, you know, 15 years, basically trying to figure out what was going on. And a lot of the therapists I had would say things like, well, you're, you know, you're pretty functional. You're doing pretty well. And I had to like really push to get neuropsych testing initially because my therapists were just kind of like, well, you're okay. And I was like, I am miserable. I am not okay. Um, and I had an eating disorder in there. And that's, it's actually also really common for autistic people to have eating disorders for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, so all these things, like, I know I'm just kind of glossing over this and saying all of these things, but this is to say from the ages of like 15 to 25, I very consistently assumed I would be dead soon. Like I was suicidal very frequently. Um, my chronic pain was just like, I passed out from pain periodically because my pain was so bad and I wasn't getting help for it because I grew up in like anti-medicine kind of a cult like situation, um, <laughs> light, light cultiness <laughs> in my childhood. Uh, it was the quiverful movement, which is really weird. So I like was coming into adulthood sort of with this idea that like, I don't, I will never find help. And like, there's nothing that can help me. And even if I do like this, the, you know, I was very suspicious of doctors and diagnoses because of the way I was raised. So it was a slow process for me of like, okay, there's help available. <laughs> Even if my therapist right now is not the most helpful therapist in the world, it's still useful for me to do this process. So I stuck with it even when my therapist wasn't great. And I did find some great ones as well. And in this really slow process, like one of the things I had to do was intellectualize everything. And this is a thing I feel like now it's great. People are talking about the body and like somatics and, you know, that's some of the work I do with people. And at the same time, my trauma was so severe that I had to go through this intellectual process of being able to like, look at it from a distance because I could not handle emotionally, like what was in my body at the time. Yeah. And so over this like process, I finally was able to get to the point where I was able to do somatic work where, you know, working with the body and kind of letting out things that are I don't know if trapped is the right word, but like, you know, emotions and memories that are held in the body. I was able to start building trusting relationships with therapists and like really dig in a bit more. And then, yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's like, it's always a process, but in the last five years of what I would say, like these last five years, <laughs> I would say the, one of the things that's been the most challenging is every time I sort of, uh, you know, figure out something big or end up feeling a lot better, then I realize that, or I, I have realized at certain points that some of the people who I'm the closest with, including one of my exes at one point, like all we talked about was trauma and like negative stuff. And all we did was complain together. And that's like a super important part of the process, right? Like, it's not that that can't or shouldn't happen. It's important. And I had friendships and relationships, I was looking at, and I was like, I 
can't just sit here and take all of your <laughs> trauma dumping anymore. Like I need a break. Yeah. And that, so that's where this kind of title or idea came to me of like brave enough to embrace joy is I had to take a step back and say, you know, I'm at a point where I'm doing really well and I can handle some trauma dumping from people, but it can't be like the only thing in our relationship. And so I did have to intentionally make some new friendships and then also, you know, kind of like set boundaries with some people in my life and just be like, Hey, you can't call me and talk to me for 45 minutes, just straight complaining with <laughs> no input from me whatsoever. And then be like, thanks. Bye. And hey, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, I don't know how well I explained that, but that's what's been on my mind. And that's sort of the, the journey and the journey is definitely not done. Right. I am 35. Mm. I recognize I'm still in a process. And at the same time, like my happiness set point is the highest it's ever been. I can feel that like, but even when bad things happen, I come back to a happiness set point that feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it does make sense. And it's, I love the way that you talked about it. it's being a process. And it's not just like, oh, I'm going to decide to be happy one day. <laughs> because while I do think that like being happy is something you have to actually choose because it's so easy to also choose to be miserable. Like you have to choose how you want to feel. But I love how you said that it's not just like, oh, I, I made the, the, the choice. And then like, I'm happy. I'm a happy person now. There's a process to it. Um, and I, I love that, you know, you talk about setting boundaries with people. How did that work to set boundaries with people that like you already knew? Like, I mean, it's one thing to like make the new friendships and like, you know, you establish those boundaries to begin with, I guess. But how did it work? Like just out of curiosity with setting those boundaries with people that you already knew? Yeah. I mean, that one person I was thinking of who literally, I think we had two or three phone calls in a row where they called me and they complained for literally close to an hour. And then at the very end, they're like, oh, I got to go. And they like, didn't even ask me about myself. And I was just like, um, if, if this were somebody in the periphery of my life, I probably would have been like, you know, screw you basically. <laughs> I'd like taken a big step back, but it was somebody yeah. who I was like, had a lot of connections with, including professional connections. And so I was just like, I knew I needed to say something. So I literally just said like, Hey, like I, if you want to vent and complain, I need you to ask me if I'm up for that. And maybe we can like, set a time limit or something <laughs> but like because that's the other thing too is in this like when you start to feel better and when you know when your mood starts to improve when you feel when you start to feel like things are more manageable there's still this transition period within that where it's kind of at least for me it feels kind of tenuous and I'm still kind of, you know, figuring out how it applies in the real world, right? It's like when you learn yeah. something intellectually and then you actually have a fight in your relationship and then you're like, oh, this is like the boss level, <laughs> right? Of like yeah. actually being able to apply it. And there's this transition period where for me, I need a break from like processing other people's stuff around that, if that makes sense. So like yeah. if I'm learning how to, you know, or, or actively practicing trying to uh, you know, work with the negativity bias in my brain, which we all have, but, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to actively try to like set aside some of the negativity bias and like actively focus on what's going well and where I am safe, for example. And then to have someone come and just be like, oh, I just need to dump on you about, you know, 
all the negative things and how I'm not safe. Like I was still in that little tenuous place where I was like, no, no, I'm still learning how to do this. And if, and, and there were, you know, in the case of this particular person with these phone calls, like I would be emotionally triggered for a couple hours after that. I was just like, you know, not feeling good. And I was like, okay, this is not sustainable. And I felt close enough to them that I was able to just like state that pretty directly and just be like, Hey, this is not working. Here are some things that might work instead. And they were totally fine with it. So that was, you know, that went really well, actually. (laughs) Did it go better than you thought it would? Yes. I always worry that it's going to go really badly. And that's like another, you know, it's an autistic thing to have trouble making friendships and like have trouble maintaining friendships. I Mm -hmm. one one and or the other. So like, I always worry because I've had friendships end and I don't know why. And like, they don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, okay, so I did something. I assume like it's probably me and I, you know, don't want that to happen if I can avoid it. And at the same time, like part of what's made my life better, (laughs) like feeling better is actively seeking friendships and relationships where people like embrace who I am and aren't just accepting or tolerating who I am. I like that. Not just tolerating. Yeah. Um, Cause that doesn't feel good. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And I've, I've been thinking a lot about different things like that lately of like how people deserve to be, you know, I've been thinking about relationships a lot cause of some things I'm doing, but like, you know, people deserve, like you deserve to have somebody feel the same way about you as they do about, about you as you do about them. You know, like that mutual, like, I really want to be around you. Not just like, oh, like I'm tolerating you and like, I can make this work. Like I just, but I love that embracing who you are and having, finding your people. I love that. Um, So how do you feel like you, what are some things that you did to like let go of the expectations that you had as a younger person to be able to reach for something better, reach for this, this happy, this joy, this whatever. That's such a good question. Cause I did not have happiness modeled to me as a child. Both my parents were very miserable, very depressed. Um, and also had a lot, both had a lot of social difficulties. Like it, I did not see them being happy. And I actually remember a moment in my early twenties when I was in an abusive relationship, I was talking to one of my siblings and I said, I don't think happiness is like an important value in my life. And they were like, are you okay? (laughs) That's sad. So I was, I mean, it it wasn't, you know, it wasn't immediate. Yeah. Um, One thing I did land on as a kid it's been so interesting as I've learned more somatic modalities, I like invented a bunch of things that already exist as a child. (laughs) I was doing them to myself. So like, there's this, there's something called havening, which is this very particular type of touch. And when I learned that, I was like, oh, I used to do that to myself for like Mm -hmm. an hour every night. Like it was my big calming thing. So I like, I landed on a bunch of calming sort of techniques and, and like, you know, read about art therapy as a teenager and was like doing it to myself. So you know, I was kind of yeah. like also self-therapizing a lot, but I felt really, I felt like it was something I couldn't talk to people about because it kind of felt like this weird internal thing that I was like making up. And I worried that if I were open about that, that people would both say that my like painful experiences weren't real. This is just teenage brain, right? But <laughs> it was weird that people would say that what I was experiencing wasn't real, but then also that like what I was doing to feel better was 
maladaptive or something. Like I had this big fear around letting people know how much support I actually needed mm-hmm. and like what my body was actually asking for. And that's still something I'm learning to like be brave about and talk about openly instead of just being like, oh, it's fine. I'll just meet all my own needs over here in the corner and I don't need anything. But it's so much easier to do that, right? Yes, it is much. And it's much less vulnerable to do that. Yes. Yeah. So where did you feel like you started making the shift of like, okay, wait, what? <laughs> sorry. How do I ask this question? It makes sense in my head. Um, like, how did you... Were you, when were you able to like decide, okay, wait, happiness does get to be one of my values and happiness is, is, can be something that I can have. Oh, so good. Um, so actually I wasn't necessarily going to talk about this, but I should probably mention that one of the incorrect diagnoses I had specifically was bipolar, which is a really common, uh, misdiagnosis for autistic (laughs) non-men. And my guess is it's also a really common misdiagnosis for ADHD specifically because of the energy level and the really cyclical energy. Okay. So I was actually actively suspicious of happiness because I had been told like, oh, keep an eye out for mania, right? So mm-hmm. if I was experiencing joy unattached to anything, I was like, oh no. Like that was my first thought was, oh no, anytime I experience joy <laughs> because of this <laughs> diagnosis. Wow. And that, you know, that diagnosis is now off my chart because I don't have it. Um, but for, again, that was a period of, you know, about 10 years where I had that misdiagnosis. And so I was like actively suspicious of joy. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my psychiatrist and therapist at the time about that. And they were like, oh yeah, it's very common, you know, to have this like hypervigilance around it because, you know, you're trying to like look for symptoms. Um but I mean, really what was happening, like looking back as I was experiencing periods of hyper-focus where, or like hyper-fixation on a special interest. And then I was sometimes, and then also with the ADHD, like, I'd be like, oh good. My two brain cells are finally working together. <laughs> like <laughs> I finally can focus. And so I'd be like, I just have to work as hard as I can. So I would mm-hmm. like push really, really hard for a few days. And then I would like have a meltdown, <laughs> which to be fair, doesn't look great on the outside. Um, so for me, actually part of the switch was realizing like, oh, I'm autistic. That was part of it. So about five years ago, when I really started being like, this might be a thing. And then, and then realizing, oh, and that also means I probably don't have bipolar <laughs> and like processing that and realizing, oh, okay, I'm allowed to just be happy and nobody's going to like try to pathologize that hopefully, you know, um, but like literally with a bipolar diagnosis, if you appear too happy in your therapist's office, they're like, are you okay? <laughs> so That sucks. So I was like tempering, you know, my natural yeah. enthusiasm. And then I think the other kind of big piece, um, I really disagree with the idea that like, you have to love yourself first before other people can love you. It's like, no, you have to have love modeled to you. If you don't know what love feels like, which I didn't as a kid, like you have to have someone model what healthy love looks like. And so having healthier relationships and just, you know, not putting up with abusive shit anymore (laughs) in my case, but, you know, having healthier relationships in particular, um, and my current partner who I live with, we were coming up on six years together and that relationship in particular, like at the beginning of it, we both were like, wow, you're so nice to me. (laughs) 
And then we'd both be like, no, no, I'm just doing normal stuff. But like we'd both experience and, and they're on the spectrum as well. So like we'd both experienced people, you know, tolerating, but not really liking us, um, mm-hmm. you know, losing, having relationships end and just be like, I don't know what happened. Like, did I do something? Um, and so, you know, we communicate really well together because we get the way the other person communicates. And that was a big thing for me to just be like, oh, I can just like, I can just have easy relationships that are not fraught with peril. (laughs) And then just slowly, you know, again, that practice of like being able to take what I'm learning intellectually in therapy and apply it to my real life and have, you know, a a better, have better conflict, (laughs) have easier conflict. And I, I feel like we do that really well. So that was another big piece was just like, oh, I can have easy, healthy relationships that feel good. And there doesn't have to be a whole bunch of drama and nonsense around it. I love that. I love the idea that like relationships don't have to be drama. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like sometimes I'm not a very dramatic person. Sometimes my friends, I'm like, do you have to have a soap opera for like everything? Like it's it's not necessary. Well, and it's part of, it's actually like a joke in ADHD that there's like a lot of drama seeking, but it's just like, it's seeking a high amount of sensory input and like wanting a lot of intensity seeking intensity and so you know an easy way to get that is relationship drama that's for sure that's fair but I love that you you know realize that it doesn't have to be that way and yeah um finding your own expectation of what you wanted is that something that you feel like you've done in the last couple years is find what you actually want like find the x how do I say that like find your own picture that you want to shoot for I guess if that makes sense yeah and I think that's such like such a good important question because when you've had a lot of hardship or like been really miserable I think it's really easy to just sort of land where you land and be like cool good enough like this is fine (laughs) this is you know my main criteria for a relationship was just am I not being abused and I was like that's actually not good enough like simply not abusive does not mean that this person's a good fit for me (laughs) bar's pretty low (laughs) the bar was aggressively low um so yes I have definitely spent time um and actually part of like for me at the very beginning of the pandemic like in the first lockdown I was like oh I actually need a lot more space than I'm giving myself like that was that was for me that was the like I've been thinking about it, but I was like, okay, I'm definitely autistic (laughs) because the moment I got to just like be at home for two weeks, I was like, oh shit. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was obviously anxiety inducing in other ways, but the, the, like bringing the sensory stuff down and like not being on the train every day. And just, I, I was like, okay, I need, my sensory needs are more than I realized and started to process that. And then again, like starting to process, you know, looking at the people in my life and being like, who is, who genuinely enjoys me and is like having a good time and like, who is kind of tolerating me or even like infantilizing me and being like, oh, haha, like you're so funny and interesting, but like, (laughs) I don't know. And I get a lot of that people being like, oh, you're fun, but they, they're kind of like looking at me like I'm a bug in a jar or something <laughs> they're like <laughs> you're interesting but they're not really seeing me as a person yeah you're interesting but they're not interested in... yeah 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 
That's so interesting. It's I love how you keep talking about how like, oh, I realized that this was this and I love that you, you keep using that there's always an and. I love that because I feel like sometimes we are, I don't know, I think it starts when we're little, you know, you're teaching kids things, but then we don't teach them that like things can be more than one thing, you know, yes. it's like you can be angry and sad and you know what I mean? Like you can, there's always an and. And I think that that was one thing for me, at least as an adult was like, wait a minute, <laughs> like, things can be more than one thing. Like, yeah. I, I love that you, you know, talk about that. Like it was this and it was this, um, and finding out really what you needed and paying attention to what you needed. I love that. Yeah. Um, so what do you think is it about joy that makes it need bravery? Like, why is it scary? It's so scary about joy. Yeah, for me. So, you know, that's why I brought up the bipolar piece. Like, even though I haven't had that diagnosis in a while, it's still like, that was in my formative years that I had that diagnosis. So like, it's still, a, I have a little bit of that natural, like suspicion. And along with that, the other place I've experienced that is when I am my full enthusiastic self, like this happened to me a lot in my young teens and, and I mean my whole life, but like, I remember it especially happening a lot in like college that I would be, you know, fully enthusiastic about my thing. I'd be like very happy and bouncy and sharing it. And I would literally have people ask me if I was mentally ill in like various forms. So that sucks. <laughs> like when yeah. I'm being my full, you know, when I'm bringing my full enthusiasm, it reads to some people as you know, ill because our society does not allow that particular expression of joy easily. So to me, it takes bravery to just like be as excited as I am about something because I know it can be a lot for other people. I can literally start talking about something I'm interested in and just talk for half an hour. I'm like, I can monologue. <laughs> I, love I love it. Yeah. I like yeah. I wonder if part of like people's hesitant, like, cause I I've seen that too, you know, and I, and I've even been that person that's like, Oh, like slow down. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it is, we, we have this society is conditioning to like, everything needs to like fit in boxes and everything needs to be like, I don't know. We're almost conditioned to be kind of miserable, you know, like, Oh, yeah. like you're, you're happy. Why are you happy? Like, because I want to yep. be happy. <laughs> like, why can't I just be well, happy? And I had this really striking experience when I went to this music festival in Italy a couple years ago where I was looking around and I was like all the kids look happy all the teenagers look happy and then I was like oh it is mostly in America that everybody's <laughs> just miserable and I hadn't even that hadn't even occurred to me and then I was talking to some other people and reading about you know kind of the teenage experience of the last handful of decades and it was like yeah like this was not normal even 30 or 40 years ago for all the children and teenagers to be miserable but look at the situations we're putting them in and the anxiety they were putting them through, like, yeah. you know, so yes, like, and, and so then there's this additional layer in the society I live in, which is that, okay, if most people I know are miserable and burnt out and stressed and like trying to survive capitalism, if I'm just like over here being like, do, 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 like happy <laughs> people are kind of like, you know, either what's wrong with you or, or they, I have had people take it personally in a way mm -hmm. that it's like, I'm not respecting their misery, misery, um, <laughs> in this <laughs> moment. And I, you know, and I try to be like, I actually had a conversation with someone in a group I'm in where I was like, Hey, I've noticed that on the group calls, people are mostly bringing like big, heavy stuff. And it's like a, for business owners. So it's mm -hmm. just like, 
this, and I was just like, I've noticed people are bringing big, heavy stuff and I don't want to bring like a, a win or like a really practical question. If the last two people have just been like crying on the call <laughs> and I was just, just asking like, is this okay in the context of this group? And they were like, oh yeah, it's fine. Like, I don't know why it's been so dark the last few calls, but like, <laughs> but I, I think about that. Right. Cause I had to learn yeah. social rules from scratch, you mm-hmm. know, or like into more intellectually, they weren't as, uh, obvious to me. And so I look at this and I'm like, okay, in this situation, I'm not supposed to be too happy. I'm like supposed to tone it down. And that's like what people expect of me. And I can choose to not do that and just be myself. But then I deal with the fallout of whatever, you know, like I've gotten some weird feedback. (laughs) (laughs) So it's always, that's the thing too, is like the, just be yourself. It's like, yeah, but if I'm fully myself, like there will actually be consequences. Yeah. And I and so, just have to accept that, like, if I'm going to do that. So that's where the bravery comes in for me in part. So how do you find that balance of, like, trying to be respectful of other people, but also being true to who you are? Yeah, really good question. I honestly, one of the reasons I really like making a podcast is because it's just me talking. <laughs> I can just, you know, unless I have a guest, but like, yeah. I can, I can just go deep on a topic. I can say whatever I want to say in the tone that I want to. I feel like I can be my natural self in a certain way. And that's funny because it's, you know, it's asynchronous, but then other people who are taking that and listening to it are appreciating it because they're only listening if they want to. Right. So yeah. yeah. And I love that. I love knowing that I'm like, okay, I'm putting this stuff out there. Someone is enjoying it. That feels really good to me. Um, And then like in person, I mean, honestly, at this point, most of my friends are neurodivergent. That's the other thing is like, mm-hmm. I just, most of my, most of the people in my life are neurodivergent. And if they're not, I tend to hold them at arm's length until they like prove that they're okay with me. <laughs> they yeah. have to like, you know, there's, there is a little bit of this testing process in my brain of just like, okay, you're cool. You're not going to like say something horrible, you know, or like ask if I'm mentally ill, right. Which hasn't happened in a while. <laughs> But then, you know, part of it too, is I will often just tell people I'm autistic because then it makes for them, it makes it make sense. And I don't love that as like an answer, but Mm -hmm. it's what I'm working with right now. But it's just like, I've noticed if I tell people at the beginning of a conversation that I'm autistic, they seem to like me more. And there is research Mm -hmm. around that as well. um, That like neurotypical people don't like autistic people immediately like there's like within seconds but if they're told they're autistic they're like oh okay there's a reason <laughs> that I don't like you um so anyway that's another like thing that I do because I I do notice that it makes people but that that to me is writing that line of like okay they're just tolerating it now you know what I mean yeah. like and I, yeah. I wish that I didn't even have the urge to say that and I could just like 100% be myself and people would be like you're so cool and fun but like you know, when that happens, that person's usually also neurodivergent <laughs> on well, average. Yeah. I think we're we're making progress as a as a whole, as a society to being more accepting and stuff, but it is very yeah. slow and very, very small. <laughs> so I think that, you know, but I love that you've you know, you're finding your people and the people that you I assume that you spend the most time with are the people that you really do feel like they like you and they, they're not just tolerating you. And I think that that's yeah. awesome. Um, so what advice would you have for anybody that's looking to embrace, be brave enough to embrace more joy in their life? 
Oh, good question. I mean, I think the first thing I think of, and this is just my process and kind of what I've come to is like, let yourself feel it entirely or as much as you can on your own first. So like, let yourself self-define your experience because the moment you bring it to other people, they start putting their interpretations on it or, you know, get maybe giving you words or labels that may not apply to you or may not make sense to you. So like being able to, you know, I mean, these are things I do, <laughs> put music on and like dance is a very loose word for what I'm doing, right? I'm stimming <laughs> to music. Uh -huh. Um, I have like, uh, like I have a travel BOSU ball in my office that I love to bounce on. So, you know, like finding things that feel that let you express the joy physically and then doing those things in private and just being like, what is this experience? <laughs> like, what does this feel like? How can I, you know, increase this experience of joy or just, you know, take when I find it, and like when it happens naturally, um, and like play with it, play is a word to think about a lot. And then once you feel like, okay, I know what this feeling is and how I'm working with it, then it can start to feel easier to have that in front of other people and just express your natural enthusiasm or, you know, even just saying to people like, wow, I'm just, I just had this like sudden rush of happiness out of nowhere. Like, that's not a thing that we talk about. We usually talk about emotions when they're immediately attached to a circumstance. Yeah. And we tend to not talk about them outside of that. So to just be like, oh, I felt this like rush of sensation in my body. Cool. <laughs> I don't need a reason for that. Yeah. Um, and then that's another thing I think about too, is just like not trying to come up with a reason for it. Just like allowing your system to have these rushes of sensation and feeling, which could be joy. That's one of them. And just like being like, wow, that's cool. That's cool that my body can give me that experience when nothing has happened in particular. <laughs> and I'm just like standing here. <laughs> it's cool. I think it's a good sign because it's a sign that your body yeah. is like feeling good. Yeah. I think that's great. I, the, of course, I like I said, I come from the middle of nowhere. So it kind of like makes me think of the the, the saying, like, don't look a, look a gift horse in the mouth. You know what I mean? Like, don't question like things like your body's going to give you this gift of joy. Just accept it and say, thank you. Yeah. This is awesome. Like, I love that. Yeah. And I love the idea of like kind of practicing feeling that at, at, by yourself before you take it out into the world. Because I think a lot of times we get really excited about something and we go, well, we want to share it, but we're not secure enough in it yet to not have other people's opinions destroy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I'm an external verbal processor. So that's really hard for me to like, I'm like, I want someone to just sit and listen to me process. <laughs> and when that's around, you know, a new project or an idea or something, I totally experience what you just said, which is like, then if somebody's like, oh, is that, is that going to work? Like, is that a good idea? And I'm like, oh shit, maybe it's not a good idea. I don't know. So yeah, it's really hard to find that balance. I think of the, like being open to other people's input and also still letting yourself have your own experience. And there's almost like a certain stubbornness in that of, you know, if you're experiencing joy for no reason, let's say for no reason, and you express that to someone and then they, I don't know, try to like say something, they're like, how can you feel that way when, you know, this bad thing is happening, right? Um, to just kind of be like, huh, yeah, okay. But, but not take it in. <laughs> <laughs> 
I hear what you're saying and I'm going to continue having my own experience. I love that. I hear what you say, but. And no, thank you. No, thank you. It's <laughs> <laughs> like when I was traveling, one of the, one of the people I was traveling with at one point, like we with the, around the food, like we would try everything. Right. And they're like, so they're like, no, no, I'm going to try it. But then it's like, but no, thank you. <laughs> I tried it. No, thanks. Like I, I don't need that. Like, thank you. But no, thanks. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much. So much amazing wisdom in this. This has been so awesome. I want to like just keep talking like all day, but um, I do like to keep podcast episodes not super long, mostly because mm -hmm. I don't have that long of an attention span. So yep. <laughs> I don't expect other people to. Um, any last things that you want to share before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I want to share that when emotions happen in the body. So when we have these sensations and feelings that we then layer emotion words on top of, it's another way to put that the actual sensation in the body usually only lasts 30 to 90 seconds. That is largely not our experience of emotions because we latch onto them and we start like, you know, why did this happen? What happened right before this? And that's our brain trying to like create stories to keep us safe in the long run, right? It's trying to use this emotional shorthand to make us learn things really fast <laughs> so that we don't die. <laughs> but something that, you know, like when you have, when you start playing more with joy or experiencing more joy or letting yourself experience it when it's happening, it's really common to want to latch onto that and be like, okay, now I need to stretch this out and make it last a long time. But physiologically, it's usually 30 to 90 seconds for any feeling because it's, mm. it's just messaging in the body. And then the body's like, you got the message. Cool. Unless you ignore it. And then you know, sometimes it comes back stronger <laughs> later, but like, that's a, something I wanted to say is like part of, for me, this journey of just like having a higher happiness set point has been letting myself just let these even good emotions be transient or, you know, not good, but you know, emotions that I like and prefer mm -hmm. they're transient and I can't hold on to them and make them stay. And trying to do that usually makes me miserable again. So <laughs> You know, just like, I think a lot about just letting these, when these emotions are coming up, just being like, I'm just going to play with this for right now, because this is when this is happening is right now. And yeah. I can't like wait and be like, oh, I'll finish my task. And then I'll experience the joy in an hour. No, that's not, it's not going to just like <laughs> come back on my schedule. So <laughs> I love, I love what you said about emotions, just being messaging in the body and like, just letting it be that, because I think I've had the experience too, of like holding on to things and spent the last couple of years trying to learn to just feel and then let it go or listen to it. What is it trying to tell me and let it go? And I, I love that of like, okay, you get the message. Like let's listen to the messages that's coming in and then we'll, cause you're right. Things don't come on a, on a schedule. Very <laughs> few things happen on a schedule. <laughs> awesome. That is so brilliant. You're amazing. So amazing. Thank you. I'm been so excited and this has been such a fantastic conversation thank you so so much for being here and helping us learn about joy such a unique perspective and i love it thank you so much thanks for listening and if you enjoyed what you've heard today please leave a review down below and share this with anyone that you feel like could use a little more brave in their life and if you'd like to follow more of my journey to be brave, you can follow me on social media and the link down below. Have a fantastic day and don't forget to be brave.